Well, welcome to Safe Haven. My name is Troy Nicholson. If I don't know you, I'm one of the teaching uh, pastors here at Safe Haven. I'm glad that you're here to journey with us through the book of Exodus once again. And what a journey this has been. Uh, The journey of Genesis and Exodus has been a wonderful journey um, with the people out of Israel. It's what we've been going through most recently. Um, And as the people are coming out of Egypt... Um, they've been led by the Lord. Um, God has provided miracles. He's provided food. He's provided water. Um, they've grumbled. He's given them grace. It's this tit for tat of grumbling and grace. We've seen that. Um, and, and, and last week, as Johnny led us through, we have this community involvement. Because of what has, God has done, it, it literally changes communal life. It, it changes everything about us, what we're formed to be a part of, made to be a part of. So we've looked at that. Um, in all of it, I hope... That what you've seen is that God is not just leading the people out. That he's crafting a people. It's it's something totally different. He's not just taking a group of people and going, hey, I'm going to lead you out. He's, He's taking those people and he's making that crowd a specific singular people. A a distinct people. That's been his, his, his mantra the whole time. I guess what I'm saying is this. I think there's a tendency we can have with looking at the book of Exodus to see it something like um, the uh, rescue of people from Osama bin Laden. Like Osama bin Laden's got them captive, and then God comes in and he just kind of gets them out. That can be our tendency to see. God came in, got the nation of Israel away from this tyrant. That's not what's going on. That, That did happen. But I hope you're seeing every single moment that we've been going through, everything he's leading them through is to teach them that, yes, I've brought you out, but I've done that to make you something, to craft in you the fabric of your being, to to make you a family, to make you unique, to make you fit to be my family, the Lord says. So that's what we've been doing. And today we're at a monumental moment. I know that we've said that a lot recently because the Red Sea is a monumental moment. I mean, um, all the things are monumental moments we'll be going through. Today we hit the Ten Commandments in our journey through uh, the book of Exodus. And yes, this is an overwhelmingly familiar passage. And is the danger with most overwhelmingly familiar passages, you can go, okay, I already know those, check out, take a nap, boom, it's Monday. I, I, I implore you. It's anything but mundane if we look at it deeper. This is a fantastic text, not just an Old Testament Ten Commandment text, but it is a fantastic text for new covenant people in Christ. And I hope you're going to see that today um, as we kind of journey through this. That's my goal. That's what I hope the Lord does. So let me set the stage before we read the text. Um, Our God is a covenant-keeping God. That's what we've seen all year long as a church. If you're a guest, we've been journeying through Genesis and Exodus quite literally all year long. And what we've seen is God's a God of covenant. He's given several covenants already. First, we had the Adamic covenant with Adam, right? Then after that, we had the... Anybody want to take a shot at it? The Noahic covenant with the flood. After the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, right? And now after the Abrahamic covenant, we finally got the Mosaic covenant. So that's kind of been what's going on the whole time. If you want to summarize all of Genesis and Exodus up to this point in four segments, it's four covenants. God is a covenant-keeping God. And so each covenant, God is having a um, a DTR with his people, Uh, a define the relationship moment with his people. You know what I'm talking about, right? You're in a relationship and everything's going great and you have that moment that you go through Sonic and get that shake and sit down and, hey, let's, let's, have, let's, let's have a DTR, right? And then the person that you're hoping wants to share a shake with you goes, man, I'm having a lot of fun. You are a really great friend, <laughs> right? You're a great person. Yeah, I really enjoy you as a, as a friend, Right? So there's this define the relationship moment. Each of these covenants are DTRs. However, this one's totally different. This one and all the covenants in the Bible is God not saying, boy, you're a really good friend. It's Him going, 
you're a horrible person and I love you as my own child, my dear family, my beloved one. So it's flip side. It's beautiful. It's this beautiful thing. This is what the Lord's doing through all these covenants. So... Perhaps the DTRs that we see most are not in relationships with people that we want to date or marry or or whatever, but it's with our own kids. We have defined the relationship moments with our kids from the moment that they're born, right? So in my family, here were some of these DTRs. Kids, we, as nickel sons, we eat at the table. It's it's what we do. It's, It's part of our family. That's what we you, you can't go eat there here we eat together at the table or this one we never ever disrespect our mother ever um you you can ask but all of my kids um if there's one thing that will light their dad's fuse more than anything else it's we do not disrespect mom period i'll lose my ever loving mind and probably my credentials as a pastor in that moment, it, we just don't do that. That's one of the things we don't do as nickel sons. Another thing is this. We take our shoes off at the door. Like right now, you're like, I do not want to be a part of your family. <laughs> we take our shoes off at the door. It's just what we do. We come in, we kick them off. Now, they're a, they're a muddled mess a lot of times, but we just do that. That's one of the things we do. Or this one here. We do not camp out in our room. If we camp out in our room and isolate ourselves from the rest of the family, in our family, what happens is you lose your door. And when I say door off the hinges, the door literally gets removed off of the hinges and moved into another location, as has happened. Kobe, can you clarify? This is confirmed, yeah. Uh, right. It, it's, it, these are things that are in our family. This is part of our family crest. You may have different things in your family, but nonetheless, that's what's going on with the Ten Commandments. Is the Lord's going, I love you. I've redeemed you. I've brought you out. I'm here to hold you. I'm here to cuddle you. And here's what it looks like to be a part of our family. Here's what we look at. Here's what we look like. Not as nickel sons, but as... God's sons and daughters. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on with the Ten Commandments. So as we dive through this, Exodus 19 and 20 often is viewed as this punitive moment. The Ten Commandments. That's where I do this or don't do this. Right, And if I, if I do this, then I'll be loved by God. If I, if I don't do this, then I won't be loved by God. And we see it as almost as this legalistic, judicial, punitive thing. Right? Probably a lot of you in this room, that's your concept of the Ten Commandments. It's God as a cosmic overlord. He's given me the rules that I have to abide by. That's view one that a lot of people have um, of it. But I think Exodus 19 and 20 is better understood as the psalmist said. The law of the Lord is as honey to my lips. He didn't see the law, he didn't see the Ten Commandments at all as this punitive. He saw it as, this is beautiful, this is glorious, this is wonderful, this is not God as a cosmic overlord, but I am stunned that God would love me so much that He would bring me into His family and then describe to me what it's like to be a part of that family. It's not Him as a cosmic overlord. The Ten Commandments are the Lord as a loving, gracious Heavenly Father. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. So, the way that we're going to do this is we're going to dive through this, and He's going to give us these words. That's what Ten Commandments literally means. If you look in the Hebrew, it's, it just means words. Um, and we'll see that in just a second. But He gives us these ten words to show us the protective boundaries of what it looks like to be a part of God's family. He gives us these words because He's personal. He's life-giving. He's relational. He gives us these words because He loves us and He knows what's best. If you want mom and dad in the Nicholson clan to be angry, go hide out in your room. You'll see the wrath come out real quick. However, in the Nicholson family, if you want it to be loving and peaceful and us all laugh together and let's have fun, 
get out your room. Don't huddle up in there. And then we'll all be happy. That's what's going on here. He gives us these words, and the Israelites are not, oh no, he's giving us words. It's more like this. He's giving us some words. The God of the universe that we have rejected is talking to us. And he loves us to tell us what's a part of being his family looks like. He loves us enough. So this is what's going on in this text. It's a holy awe. It's a reverence I hope you'll feel as we go through these. So we're going to subdivide it in three sections. Uh, The context of what's going on, the commandments themselves, and then we'll leave the third one for you to wonder what that's going to be. But I bet you can guess it'll probably start with a C. Um, So here we go. The context. I'm just going to read the context aloud. And hopefully you'll see as we read the context what I'm trying to show you, that, that they, they're enamored by this moment. This is not a terrifying thing. They're stunned. They're excited. It's almost like, if you will, they're getting ready to go to a wedding. That's what it feels like. Not that they're going to the woodshed to get spanked by the Lord. Feel this in the text. We're going to read all of Exodus 19. It'll be on the screen above. Um, Lord, take your text. Make it speak. Here we go. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on the day that they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. Then Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and how I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all that's... Are you already feeling it? It's not. If you don't do these things, I'm going to smite you with a lightning bolt. Are you seeing the difference already? He's going, if you do this, we're going to have a party. Like, it's going to be fun up in God's house, okay? See, I I should save the excitement for later. Let me tone that down back to a three, and we'll pump it back up to a ten when we get later. Verse uh, six, And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, there's the words, that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's the commandments, and he's going to give it in just a second, chapter 20. But verse seven goes on. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, and set before all these words that the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're pumped. We'll do this. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people... uh, uh, When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. From the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be glorious. You need to wash your duds. You need to clean up, consecrate yourselves. Verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. Verse 14, So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. They washed their garments. They they got ready. Think about a wedding day again. You don't just come to the moment going, well, I just cut the grass. I'll just bust on in there, right? You don't do that, do you? You get ready. The Ten Commandments was this moment. It was a, this is a cool moment. Let's put on our, 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 let's put on our church clothes, which doesn't really fit at Safe Haven, right? It's kind of like extra clothes, right? Verse 15. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Don't go near even to a woman. Don't even have sex. 
This is so special. This is such a special moment. Consecrate yourself this way. Verse 16. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled and trembled is not fear as in I'm terrified, but tremble is I'm in holy awe. I'm in reverence. They showed up and everything was right. It's like Disney World. Odd transition. I've only been there once, uh, but the moment that we walked in Disney World, number one, if you're OCD, Disney World is your place. It is phenomenal. The plugs on the wall match the air vents, match the cups, match the napkins, match the toilet paper. It is just stunning. Everything matches. And, and, and everything that I had in my mind couldn't have compared to the moment. I couldn't have built it up enough to the moment you make that turn. And when you make that turn and then there's that, the big castle, the way they set the whole thing up is to stun you because you can't see it. And you make that turn and it's just like... Boom! And in that moment, I remember going, it's like that. That's what's going on. They didn't come to the mountain of, oh no, we're getting the Ten Commandments. They got ready, they prepared, they, they, all the pedophores were in place, right? And they make the turn and it's the mountain, God's there and they go, whoa! That's the trembling that's occurring now in this moment. And the sound of the trumpet uh, I, guess, I guess you could say something like this. Uh, I'm not even sure where we're at. Are we verse 16, 17? Right? There's this, there's this feeling of, of daddy's here. Uh, verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain greatly trembled. <laughs> In our weddings, it's, it's always the lady. The lady busts through the room. And when she busts through the room, everybody stands up and it's, ah, oh, here's the lady. And that's a cool moment. But it's not so here. The Lord shows up. And it's like He shows up on a Harley. Just growling. Groom. And everybody goes, wow. You're feeling it? This is what's happening in this text. Verse 19, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they should break through the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. This is a big day, consecrate yourself, we're having a party. Verse 23, and Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the mountain of Sinai. For you yourselves warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Will you go down and come up and bring Aaron with you? But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the mountain, lest they break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them dot, dot, dot. That's the context and then the commandments come. You got to feel that, church. You got to feel it. I, Roy Moore wanted the Ten Commandments and put the Ten Commandments and, and all that kind of stuff. But if it's just the Ten Commandments and you don't understand what's going on, then you don't understand the Ten Commandments. It's, it's encouraging. It's this awesome moment. I bore you on eagles' wings. Don't do this. Clean this up. Prepare. It's, it's not like the typical. Hey, we're gathered to worship today. Like today's Sunday, we're gathered to worship. And what do we do? We go, Lord, it'd be great if you'd be with us today. It's not like that at all, church. It's not, and that should speak to us about what we think about gathering before the Lord. They gathered and said, the Lord's coming. Let's, let's clean up. Let's get ready. Let's prepare. Let's think about it. Let's don't just kind of slide in on Sunday morning. Now I know it's the Sabbath and all this kind of stuff. I get it and understand that. But it was different to them. It wasn't just God be with us. It was God, you're going to be with us. If you're going to be with us, I'm going to get ready because things are going to be different. How that should impact us when we gather on Sundays. How that should impact us when we gather at community groups. 
We should think about it. How that should impact us when we gather before the Word where we know the God of the living universe, the, the living God of the universe is going to be with us. It should impact us as we come humbly going, I am going to meet with the Lord. Not, uh, I don't want to have my quiet time today. You see the difference? The difference is I get, I get to meet with the God of the universe. Holy reverence and awe. That's the setting for this text. It's deep, deep meaning. If our goats touch the mountain, they're going to die. Right? And not only are we going to meet with the God of the universe, but hear the context. And He's here to sign our adoption papers as sons and daughters of the King. It's a whole different meaning. And so they prepare. And then after that comes the commandments. You're going to be sorely disappointed in the amount of time that we spend on the Ten Commandments. Because I don't think that's the point. It's a good point. It's ten good points. It's actually 613 good points. We definitely don't have time for that. But let's look at them. So if we agree upon these things, the Lord says, then we're going to build this thriving relationship together as family members. And it's going to affect our joy eternally, but also now. And so now, with that context in mind, let's understand rightly the Ten Commandments. Verse 3 of chapter 20, You shall have no other gods before me. I'm the one adopting you. Why would you have a God before me? Do you see how that impacts these things? It's a different feel. You shall know where God's before me. Shameless bangles plug here. In other words, don't walk like an Egyptian. It's kind of what he's going with here. Don't be like the Egyptians. I'm adopting you. Don't be like them. Don't have other gods. Be distinguished. Stand firm. Don't settle for less. I'm your daddy. And I'm a good one. Number two. Don't have images or likenesses of things in heaven or on earth that you bow to. Don't have those things. Don't be like that. Don't settle for that. I'm a jealous God. And anything you can come up with image-wise will never match me. So don't do that. You can't box me in. So the question comes, well, what about art? What about TV shows? Different Christians are going to have different views on this. But the point would be, okay, well, what about Michelangelo? I think it was, was it Michelangelo that did the God, the touching fingers and all Was that Michelangelo? If I'm wrong, tell me afterwards. One of the artists. Is it wrong to have that? Is it wrong to watch the show Chosen? For some people, maybe. For some people, maybe not. I, I personally have never watched, I know it's as a pastor, I've never watched The Passion of the Christ. <gasps> right? Anybody else in here that's never watched? Okay, good, we got, okay, we got some. I've never watched it. And I will never watch it. Because I know me. I know my brain. And if I sat there and watched it, I would nitpick and criticize. And, and I would have these images of, okay, well, this is what God's like. This is what Jesus is like. And I know that it's better for me to approach humbly the Lord by just sticking with the text, because I know my brain will go to crazy land. I've never watched Chosen. Julie Beth and the kids, they love it. And they sit there and have conversations about Chosen and, and all that's going on. And I love that they love it. And it's drawing their heart's affections to the Lord. If I watch it, I'll be a cynical nut job. Well, that couldn't have happened. That couldn't have, that's taking liberty, blah, blah, blah. And in doing so, I'll create this, I won't come worshiping. I just won't come worshiping. And so I think the point here is if there's an image or something that you're bowing to as, okay, that's what the Lord is like, he says, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm holy. I'm other. I'm beyond. Now, if those things draw your heart to go, wow, God, you are amazing and stunning. You are beyond all these things, then it could be an act of worship. Does that make sense? But nonetheless, the point is, don't you dare carve something out and bow to it in worship. Now I'll let small groups and community groups decide whether you can wear a cross around your neck or not. There you go. 
But nonetheless, I think this is what's going on. Don't bow to anything. Don't settle for less. Not a graven thing, not an earthly thing. I'm God. Number three, don't take my name in vain. As the adoptive father, do not take my name in vain. Now, does he mean, can you say or not say, oh my God? Right? That, in Nicholson generation one, would definitely get you in trouble. You don't do this. Is, is that what he's talking about? I, I think that certainly fits, so maybe yes and no, depending on your motive. I think it goes deeper than that. I think what he's getting at here, the point is, don't ever use my name as a means to an end. Don't ever try to sell something and the motive be, well, God told me to tell you this. Establish yourself as the authority. You know, a lot of people try to do that. They'll take God's name and try to spin it and, and establish... It's the trump card, right? I come up to Johnny. And Johnny, I feel like God told me to tell you this. Well, now he's in a predicament. Number one, the spirit of the living God can't apparently speak to him. And number two, if Johnny goes, I don't think that's what the Lord's saying, now we've got an issue with who can hear the Lord or not. It's the trump card. And a lot of people use God's name to overlord over people. He says, don't do that. I'm the guy that I can speak to whoever I want to speak to. Don't you use my name in vain as a means to an end to manipulate people, situation, book sales. Don't slap my name on a book just so that you can sell more copies. Does that make sense? Don't use my name in vain is what's going on here. Whether to sell your book or appease the religious people at your wedding. There's been several people that I've said, I can't marry you and invoke the name of the Lord if you're not a believer in Christ. Well, but my parents are religious and we really want to have some prayers and stuff like that. And I just say, I can't do it. I can't do that. Now, if you want me to be a court justice, somebody who just signs your paper, which in the state of Alabama, you don't even sign paper anymore, right? Not before the the preacher. That's not a thing anymore. You just go to the courthouse. If you want me to do that... I'll gladly say, hey, here's their vows to one another. But we can't invoke, that's what he's getting at. Don't use my name this way. I'm beyond this. Number four. And remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. After working six days. I think the working six days might be just as important, if not more important, as remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Because you can't have one without the other. And we typically see, keep the Sabbath, and we go, okay, that seventh day, I've, got to, I've really got to make it to church to prove my love for the Lord. We also prove our love for the Lord by using the talents and gifts and abilities He's given us all week long to work and to serve Him through working means. And I think this goes hand in hand. There's certainly an aspect of rest, rest just like the Father did. Carve out a day to sit down, but what did the Father do? The Father didn't just lay down and become a sloth. On the Sabbath, he rested and contemplated all the things he had done. It was intentional. The Sabbath is a day to carve aside. He says, cut out a day. Work hard for six days. In America, largely, it's five days, if not four days. But work hard. Work hard. But then, at the end of working hard, carve out a day where you sit back and contemplate all that I've done. Bring intentionality to that day. In other words, gather with the people of God to worship and intentionally worship because the other five or six days, usually something is preventing you intermittently from focusing constantly on the Lord. You're doing things all day long. So why would you not carve out that day? I think is what's going on in the text here. In other words, make it a... Holiday. You ever thought about the word holiday? Literally means a holy day. Let's just do that. Every week, make a holy day. Set it aside. Remember me, Sabbath unto me. And in light of the incomparable God who would approach us and love us enough to adopt us in and tell us the rules to the family... Why would we not carve out a day to worship Him? So this is what's going on. Honor your father and mother. Number five, verse 12. 
Honor your father and mother. At this point, it shifts from four things to the Lord to now six things towards man. And society balks at abandoning a lot of things, right? If you, if you abandon your team, we do not abandon our teammates, right? Even from Little League. If we start it, we finish it. You remember the Olympics that just rolled by where um, the gymnast stepped out and, and the world erupted. You do not abandon your team, especially the good old nation of America. You don't do that, right? We balk at that. You don't abandon your spouse. That's, we feel that. We, no, no, don't abandon your spouse. Stick in there. Make it work. We definitely don't abandon our kids. You want to see hell's fury with community? Community's hell fury will arise if you abandon your children. But abandoning your parents is almost cool in our society. I, I mean, they're old, right? Adam Madison could speak to this as running the nursing homes. They get better care there anyway. Drop them off and then forget about them. The nursing homes are full of people that are abandoned. And I think this is what's going on in this text. Sometimes it's physically, sometimes it's emotionally. But God's saying, listen, in our family, we honor and we respect our father and our mother. This is our rules. This is how we're different than those Egyptians. This is how we're different. We don't, we don't, we don't just slip off to euthanasia just because they're a burden or whatever it is. We honor, we respect, we revere. And this is what I think is going on in this text. Now I know as I say that, there are some of you in this room whose parents have abandoned you. And you go, well, what about me? I mean, my parents... Abandoned me verbally, physically, emotionally, whatever. They checked out. Here's what I would say to you. Our father is a father to the fatherless. And our father is a mother to the motherless. You outdo showing honor to our heavenly father who is stepping into the place that your earthly father and mother should have been. You outdo showing honor. And adoption to you should mean even more. You brought me in when I had nobody here. So I think this is what's going on in this text. Do not murder, verse 13. In other words, God creates life. God sustains life. So villainous homicide is not an option in God's family. And likewise, I'll also leave this for community groups to discuss. Is there a difference between murder and killing? And where does capital punishment fit in that? This is all questions that stem out of this that we do not have time, um, nor do I have the guts to address right now. But I will do so over coffee this week. If you want to have coffee, man, we'll get together and have Edgar's and quiche like you've never seen. All right? And we'll talk about this all day long. But the point there in murder is, and I'm using these words intentionally, God creates life. You can't... have a, a premeditated, I'm, I'm going to whack this person because they don't fit my agenda. You can't do that, is the point. Number seven, do not commit adultery. In other words, our God who's adopting us is a faithful God, and we model His faithfulness. That's the point. We model His faithfulness, not just to our spouse, where we think typically of adultery, but we model God's faithfulness to our work, to our spiritual life, to everything. We model God's... We're not an adulterous people. We model this because our God models this. Eight, do not steal. I think the point of this is God has given you skill sets. We worship the Lord by using those skill sets to earn what we want. We dishonor the Lord by bypassing the system of our skill sets and stealing from somebody else to get what we want. So we don't steal. We worship. Number nine, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. So when testifying against someone, we only tell the truth. No matter if we like that person or don't like that person, we don't let our feelings override truth. We only speak truth. I'm mad at John, Andrew, James, Raphael. I hope nobody in there has named that. I tried to add as many names as I could to make sure nobody was named that. I don't like that person, and people are accusing them of stealing the car. And, buddy, I could pin them to the wall by saying I saw him steal the car, but I don't do that. 
Even though I don't, I'm mad at this person, I let truth ring true. I only speak truth. I don't have a vendetta against the person. Speak falsely to get them in trouble just because I don't like them. I don't spin the truth. I don't white lie. I just let the truth be the truth. Why? Because God, our Father, the one adopting us, is a God of truth. Truth. So I model that. And then, number ten, I don't covet other people's wives. I don't covet other people's status. I don't covet other people's money. I don't covet other people's possessions. Do not covet. And the point of this is crystal clear. It's a large thing. God is sovereign over all and has given you exactly what you need for this point in your life. So you worship by going, thank you for giving me what you've given me. And you rejoice that the Lord has given the other people what he's given them. The only thing that's left out of this is mastercrafts. You can covet other people's mastercrafts. And that is in the Vulgate somewhere hidden away. <laughs> no, we don't covet. We trust that God's sovereign has given us everything we need. And because of that, we don't covet other people's stuff. We don't covet. We rejoice. We celebrate. And so here's a few fun thoughts as we wrap up these Ten Commandments. Again... Number one is there are actually 613 commandments. There's not just 10. This is the beginning and then it keeps on going. There's 613 commandments. And these are how we are to be God's children. This is what our family crest looks like again. These 10 have stood out. The reason they've stood out is is very similar to something we have in our society called the Declaration of Independence. I doubt anybody in here could quote me all of the Declaration of Independence. Now, if you could, buddy, come on up here and knock it out of the park. But most of us in this room could do this. We could say something like this. The Declaration of Independence says, We hold these truths to be self-evident. That we all deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Amen. (laughs) And that's kind of where we end. That's as much as we know, but there's so much more. And I think that's what's happened to the Ten Commandments. There's these things that we've been... Okay, this... Now, the rest of it is just a lot going on here. But the fuller picture is God's doing something here to show the overarching view of what it looks like to be a part of His family. And then if you look at the ten, you can break them down into those two categories of the first four are upward towards God... The last six are sideways towards man, horizontal towards man. And it's all how we're to interact with God and man as part of His family. I've said that a thousand times. And then Jesus makes all this crystal clear in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, Jesus brings it to a bull. People come up and they say, Teacher, should be on the screen, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandments. And the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus didn't look at the 613. Jesus didn't even look at the 10. Jesus looked at the two categories. And he goes, You want to know what the 10 commandments are all about? It's about what we look like as the people of God, and it means this, love God and love your neighbor. That's it. Everything hinges upon that. So, as we think about our lives as a part of God's family, the simple application of this is, how are you doing? How are you loving the Lord, who has adopted you into His own home? And how are you loving your brother and sister around you? How are you loving your neighbor? And love them like yourself. And how do we love ourselves? It could be summarized in one word. We love ourselves by giving ourselves more grace than anybody ever deserves, don't we? That's how we love ourselves primarily. So how do we love others? By giving them that same grace that we give ourselves because the Lord has extended His grace upon us to draw us in to His family. That's good stuff, man. What a good text. And then let's wrap it up. Context, commandments, and then the cross. The final C. 
the cross. If you cannot understand that all this moment is about Jesus, you'll miss the whole point. you got to get there. This whole thing is about Jesus. And here we go. Somebody in here certainly is going to be like, here you go again, Troy. (laughs) You're trying to even tie the Ten Commandments back into the gospel. Well, I'm not trying. It's because it is tied into the gospel. All of it is about the gospel. The whole thing is about Jesus. So track with me. There's two views of the Ten Commandments. View number one is this. The Ten Commandments were written for me to try to prove to God how good I can be and earn a spot in His family. Which probably the vast majority in the room has viewed the Ten Commandments that way most of your life. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. I do these things, I don't do these things, and I prove to God that I am worthy to be a part of His family. That's view number one. And some of you have been duped by that. I hope you're already seeing there's another view. View two is this. The Ten Commandments were written to describe a specific person who would prove to the world that he was perfect and that he alone could conquer all these things as the promised Messiah who would conquer all these things. That's view two, and that is way more biblical. That is exactly how Christ saw this, and that is exactly how the apostles under the inspiration of the Spirit communicated the Ten Commandments. Let's walk backwards. Apostles, if Hebrews was written by one of the apostles, Paul, or if it wasn't... But under the inspiration of the Spirit, the writer of Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews chapter 7, 18-25. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. The writer of Hebrews is calling the law of the Lord weak and useless. Romans 9 does the same thing. Paul does this in Romans. Let's keep going. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. So if you're view one of going, no, no, it is a way. Hebrews is telling you, it doesn't make anything perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath... For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Who? This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, not the law, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The point was always Jesus. The point of the law is that we would attempt to accomplish the law and realize that we could not accomplish the law so that God would tell us, I'm going to send one who can accomplish the law So then we see the one accomplishing the law, we bow and go, you're the one. You're the one. You're the one who could do everything we couldn't do, and you did it. It's always to point us to the Christ. And then Matthew says the exact same same thing. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Insert ten commandments in there. Don't think I've come to abolish that. I've not come to abolish them, but to do what? Say it. No, no, like, no, I mean it. You've got to say these words. Because if you don't say them, you're not going to understand the Ten Commandments. I did not come to abolish them, but I came to fulfill them. I'm the perfect one. They come to him and go, Jesus, tell us about these commandments. And he goes, ah. I'm the only one that can fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he goes on to say this. You've heard it said, do not murder. External actions. Ten commandments. But I tell you, you've got a deeper problem with that. Don't be angry. Your heart's messed up. 
And you might could fix your hands, but you can't fix your heart. And I can. It's about the gospel. It's always been about the gospel. It will always be about the gospel. The Ten Commandments Church is about Jesus. Ooh, Lord. You can't do this perfectly, but I can and I will. And for anyone that's bought the lie, well, Troy, it's fishy that you always have to go to the New Testament to come up with His grace. You always got to jump to the New Testament. Here's what I would say to you. Number one, you've indeed bought a lie because that's a lie. Number two, go re-listen to our entire journey through Genesis and Exodus and you'll see grace littered on every single page. And then number three, this moment right here is no different. Most people think the Lord gave the Ten Commandments the law and then He gave the gospel. That's not true even in Exodus chapter 20 that we just went through. It's not a needle in a haystack, church. Grace is a shining beacon that kicks off the Ten Commandments. Perhaps rather than memorize the Ten Commandments, we just need to memorize Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, that kicks off the whole thing, which says this. Context, and then right before the Ten Commandments, he says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out. I did it. I was gracious to you. You didn't earn it. I'm the one that brought you out. Out of what? Out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of bondage. I brought you out of bondage of a tyrannical ruler. You didn't earn it. You didn't do this. I brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You didn't have any rights and you were completely oppressed and I brought you out. Church, that's the gospel. And then after that, he goes, so therefore, because of grace, look like these ten things. That's incredible. Please see the gospel through the Ten Commandments. Knowing that you are saved by grace, through grace, in grace, for grace, the Lord says, these are our family colors. These are our family rules. This is our family chant. These are our family guidelines. So, go fight the good fight. Try to model these things the best you can. Do not walk away going, the pastor at Safe Haven said the Ten Commandments are not rules we should follow. Do not walk away saying that. Because that is not the point of this. We go try to look like this, try to do this so that we can realize how hard that is and how much we need a substitutionary righteousness that has no problem pulling these off and can bestow His grace upon us. Somebody who's going to nail these perfectly and somebody who explained these more fully. So, as we wrap it up. Just like Moses passed through the waters, Jesus picks up his ministry by passing right through the waters of baptism right off the bat. Just like Moses went in the wilderness to be tempted, Jesus kicked off his ministry by going into the wilderness to be tempted. Just like Moses was in need of food and water and shelter, Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head and had to be dependent on the Father for everything. Just like Moses was fully dependent on the Father's words alone for direction, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was dependent upon the Father's will and direction in every step, even in His suffering. Just like Moses climbed the hill of Mount Sinai to receive and distribute the Ten Commandments of the Lord, our Lord climbed the hill of Calvary as the only one who had ever fully lived out the Ten Commandments. And at that moment, he exchanged the life that he earned. He won the game. He won the prize. He won the fuzzy teddy bear. He won it. And he said, I don't want it. Give me the death that they deserve so that I can finish once and for all 
life for those who would trust in my substitutionary atonement. That's the scandal of the gospel. And in this moment, all those who call upon the name of the Lord receive the grace that He has earned through accomplishing the law. It's grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace that will cleanse and pardon within. Grace, grace, God's grace. It's His. And He gives it to those who trust in Him. And that church... I think it's what the Ten Commandments are all about. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, what a great text. And Father, for everyone who is a believer in this room, I pray that this would make us have an enormous view of the cross. And God, today as we've gone through the context and some commandments that we've seen how it all points to the cross of Christ, every bit of it, so that we would never be apathetic to the Father, so we would never be apathetic to Your Word, We would never be apathetic when we sing songs about the gospel. We would never be apathetic to prayer. That we would never be apathetic about gathering with God's people to celebrate the presence of the living God, not on a mountain, but in our hearts. Teach us, Lord, to be enamored by the law, But more importantly, to be enamored by the one who conquered the law, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the all-consuming fire. We need more of you, Lord. We need more of you.